According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 21. John chapter 21. That's the gospel of John. If you try to find chapter 21 in one of the epistles, you won't find it. The Gospel of John, chapter 21, which, by the way, is the last of the chapters in the Gospel of John. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. And we have a story then that unfolds in verses uh, 2 and following, and this is... uh, Fairly well known to us, I think. We uh, discuss it every so often. This is the famous, do you love me more than these chapter, as he challenges Peter. And uh, prior to that, though, or leading up to that, is an episode here where they're out fishing and he's walking along the beach. Some details we'll have to take a look at here this morning. And then it ends with uh, a clarification, trying to remove a rumor that had spread, a rumor that is now 30 no, 50, 60 years old, um, the rumor as to uh, the Apostle John and his long life, a rumor that had spread that he would never die, and that's not true. And so the uh, author of this chapter um, wants to dispel that uh, particular rumor. And uh, we'll talk about that this morning also. All right, here's where we are. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to humble us under the authority of the Word of God, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the truth of your Word. We, we do recognize, Father, that this is your grace provision, that uh, none of us deserves this day or deserves this opportunity to be here. Father, uh, who are we that, uh, that you would open up your mind, that you would reveal your, your wisdom and your counsel to us? Father, we thank you for the truth that uh, has provided all things pertaining to life and godliness through uh, what you have revealed in the canon of Scripture. We ask for your hand of blessing as we study to show ourselves approved. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, episode 9. Having wrapped up what we were dealing with last week, you recall the end of chapter 20 really seems to be a good ending for the book. And it says there were many other signs Jesus also performed. That's chapter 20 and verse 30. These verses, 30 and 31, appear to bring the book to a close. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What a great conclusion. That's a a happily ever after, right? Um, Seems to be a great conclusion to the book. And it's not different. I mean, it, it seems to be duplicated at the end of chapter 21. It seems to be a little redundant at the end of chapter 21, notice verse 25, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were to be written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. 
So that seems to be a duplication of the ending at the end of chapter 20. In other words, 21-25 appears to be a duplication of 20-31, or 30 and 31. And so the question is then raised, well, why is that? Why does this book seem to have two endings? Why does this book seem to have an extra chapter? Uh, Because chapter 21 does appear to be an addendum. It appears to be tacked on at the end of the book. And even the language of how the chapter starts, the chapter starts with, after these things. It starts with an expression um, that would be found uh, elsewhere, uh, significantly so. Uh, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. It's it's a little bit awkward even, the way the word manifested shows up twice in verse 1. And and it shows up after the the time expression, after these things. So it, it... Verse 1 agrees that chapter 20 was a great conclusion to the book. Okay, And I find it interesting. I believe John wrote it, and I will discuss the debate about it, about who possibly could have written it, and, and the little clues that we have that he used a scribe or that he had a, 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 a scribe or what's called an amanuensis that he would have dictated to, that would have put quill to parchment kind of a thing. We'll, we'll look at the possibilities related to that. Um, I agree with um, several of the, the folks that have looked at this and, and evaluated the vocabulary that chapter 21 is John's vocabulary and it is his writing style, even if there are clues that maybe it was written later. And so it may be that John wrote his gospel and then after a period of time, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, added a, a chapter to the end of his gospel. Same, same apostle. Uh, who wrote uh, an epilogue, wrote uh, a second story, probably because uh, these legends were growing that he was not going to die, that John is never going to die. And so the Apostle John, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sat back down, put quill to parchment, and put the 21st chapter on the end of the Gospel of John. See, that's my theory, and uh, I will probably hold that till the trumpet and then we'll all learn uh, after we get to heaven exactly what uh, the truth here is so anyway after these things jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the sea of tiberius and he manifested himself in this way so we have an additional story it's not found in matthew mark or luke as is the case in most of the gospel of john uh what is it like 70 percent of the gospel of john is unique to john some some number like that Anyway, point one, this chapter is unique to John and describes a third particular manifestation of Jesus to seven particular disciples. I took out the second particular there. I didn't want to be redundant. All right. This chapter is unique to John and describes a third manifestation. And when you look at verse 14, it's very explicit. It says this now. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples, to the disciples, after he was raised from the dead. So the upper room on the the night of his resurrection with with Thomas being absent, the upper room again eight days later with Thomas being present, those were times one and times two, both of which are recorded in John chapter 20. And then the third, the third time, two a gathering of disciples. Now, there were other occasions. For instance, he appeared to Peter. He appeared to 500. And as we're putting these in a sequence, he hasn't had the 500 yet. This is now the third. 
So it's unique to John in describing a third particular manifestation of Jesus to seven disciples. And we don't know when it was. We don't know when it was. We don't know. We know when the first one was. It was um, Sunday, April 5th, right? 33 AD. Sunday, April 5th, sometime pushing midnight. By the time those uh, Emmaus Road disciples went running all the way back in from Emmaus and uh, were talking to them and so forth. And then when Jesus appeared and said, peace be with you. All right. So it was late Sunday night, pushing midnight, I think, um, on Sunday, April 5th. Then eight days later, right? Monday the 13th. Monday, April 13th was the second time. Again, the disciples were all together. And we don't know that it was in the upper room, but it was in some place in Jerusalem. It was a Jerusalem locality. Appearance one was in Jerusalem. Appearance two was in Jerusalem. This appearance is on the Sea of Galilee, okay? Or the Sea of Tiberias. Don't know whereabouts, where on the sea. They pushed themselves to shore. Uh, Doesn't say Capernaum or wherever it was. Probably the closest spot to the shore there wherever, um, around the Sea of Galilee. They were on their way to Galilee anyway because Jesus, the women, uh, had been instructed to tell the disciples, he's going to meet you on that mountain in, in Galilee. And so they have to wait for him on that mountain. All right? Now, let's, uh, let's read through these verses and then we'll come back and get the points of study. He manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. It's the first time we had a clue about that. Uh, and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, also Galilean, also fishermen. And two others of his disciples were together. They're not named. They're often thought to be maybe Andrew and Philip, but we don't know. Scripture doesn't say. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, uh, we will come with you. And so they went out and got into the boat. What boat? Okay, well, the boat, obviously. And uh, do, does Peter still own a boat? You know, do you steal a boat from somebody? Where do you get a boat? You know, do you, do you buy one? Do you rent one? Uh, do you borrow one? Do you steal one? Doesn't say. But it is the boat. You know, for three and a half years now, or three years, let's say, well, closer to three and a half, they, uh, they've been following him as fishers of men. They left their boats. You know, uh, does a boat just sit there on the beach for three and a half years? Um, they sell the business. Did uh, you know Zebedee and the servants keep it keep it up and running while uh, the uh, sons of Zebedee and these other guys were following Jesus? More details than we have in this chapter. We don't have the answers. We just have questions. All right. So they go into the boat, and there's even different words for boat throughout this chapter, which I find kind of interesting. All right. They went and got in the boat, and uh, that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, and the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So why is he doing this? Why is he, does he disguise himself? You know, is this, uh, is this a, an ability that, that we're going to have in the resurrection also? You know, our body is going to be like his body, so does that mean we can just walk around and change our appearance? You know, what does that mean? It means I can, uh, I can go places uh, looking like Brad Pitt or something, or I can, you know, wh- wh- what does that mean? People won't know it's me, and why would I do that, okay? Keep in mind, by the time we're in our resurrection bodies, though, carnality is gone, okay? We're not going to have the sin nature and all the temptations we might have to do something shady uh, in, uh, in a disguise, all right? So relax. Don't even entertain that thought. 
Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now this is why I think this is vital. This has happened too many times to be a coincidence. Okay, uh, Mary Magdalene didn't know it was him. She thought it was the gardener. The Emmaus Road guys didn't know it was him. Thought he was a stranger. Invited him in for dinner. Um, when he pops into the locked room, they know it's him. They just don't believe it. They think it's a ghost. Here, they don't know it's him. Why? Why? What, is, what are they learning at this point? And what is the application in the church age whereby we encounter Jesus and don't know it? Fundamentally, I think that's what we have to deal with. Because you, uh, Jesus Christ walks in the midst of every lampstand. He's in this flock. He holds the stars in his right hand. He's involved in this ministry. We encounter Jesus Christ day by day. We're looking right at him and we don't see it. And that's a problem. And we need to learn how to be like John and say, it's the Lord. And then we need to learn to be like Peter and throw ourselves in the sea. <laughs> okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. There, there, we have to imitate each of them. We have to imitate John. We have to imitate Peter. And both those disciples are spotlighted in this chapter. So, they did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, and, and I'm wondering, as he was in disguise, did he look to be like an older kind of man? You know, is he an older gentleman? Did he, you know, call these guys lads? You know, Scottish accent? Oh, laddie. Um, Jesus said to them, children, you have not any fish, do you? You have any food? And it's not really an insulting thing because it's morning now. It's time for breakfast. He's walking along. He's hungry. And it would be normal to look at a fishing boat coming in or not too far from the shore, whatever the, the hailing distance is. You know, how far can you shout across the lake and ask for breakfast? You know, you're hungry. You want breakfast. And here's a fishing boat. Probably, you know, made an offer to buy something here. They said no. And so he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat so that you will find a catch. Now, is any of this vaguely familiar to you? Is it ringing any bells? Is it... Okay. You've heard this story before? It's actually a very similar story to this that happened earlier. Happened much earlier. It's in Luke chapter 5, and we're going we're to look at that shortly. Um, because... There are a lot of similarities, but there's also far too many differences. And we don't, uh, there, there are some scholars and experts and folks, really Bible haters, that try to conflate the, the things and say, well, it was just one event. And, they, and, and they, they say that because they don't, they've got a flawed approach to the Bible anyway. They, they don't think God wrote the Bible. They think it was just traditions that were accumulated over time. And, and very confused people didn't know these traditions and so they they put them down in a confused way and luke wrote down the tradition in kind of a bizarre way early in the ministry where jesus calls them to be fishers of men and john writes this tradition down or the person claiming to be john writes this tradition down later after the resurrection kind of a thing and no one really knows okay that's the pathetic approach to bibliology that the that liberal scholarship has so we reject that, of course. Uh, the same Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write Luke and inspired John to write John. And these episodes are two separate events. They're very similar, but they're also very different. And we'll highlight those differences as we work our way through. In the Luke story, we'll, we'll turn there momentarily, uh, but they, they complained, they, they griped, they didn't want to do it. They said, well, okay, we'll do it because it's you, we'll do it. And uh, here, they don't know it's him. And they don't grumble about doing it. They just do it. 
So, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, okay? Same author that wrote the first 20 chapters, wrote this chapter too. He's keeping himself anonymous. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And then the other disciples came in the little boat. Change words for boat there. The other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So are there two boats and uh, you know a bigger boat and a little boat? Kind of appears that way. Uh, or, yeah, I, I kind of think that. Anyway, so they use the little boat to uh, to bring the the net into to uh, shore. All right. But when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. How about that? The fire is already set. The you know where'd the where'd the wood come from? Okay, I feel like Isaac asking Abraham, "Where's the? We got the wood. Where's the where's the sheep? Where's the lamb? You know." Where'd the wood come from? Where'd the charcoal come from? Where'd the fire come from? Where'd the fish come from? Where'd the, you know, why was he asking them for fish if he already had fish? Where'd the bread come from? All right. I'm wondering, you know, are we, are we going to, we're going to be like him in the resurrection. How much of this is, is our features of the resurrection and how much of this is just simply his divine power at work? Okay, because remember, he's taken up his privileges. <laughs> All right, he's no longer in a kenosis uh, uh, circumstance. In the resurrection, kenosis is over. All right, so uh, if he wants breakfast, there's breakfast. Okay, I, I don't suspect that we're going to have something similar, but who knows? We're in Christ. What's our privilege as the bride? You know, in the in the resurrection, am I just going to say cheeseburger, and boom? I'm kind of hoping so. All right. That's right. And a body that's not subject to decay, not subject to the uh, accumulation of fatty tissues. Okay. Now, this is, this is a good chapter, by the way, that tells you that there's, there's eating in heaven. Right? We know that already because we know that there's a, a, a supper, there's a dinner, there's a wedding feast, there's wine. All right. We know that there's food, there's fish. Okay, so somebody someday is going to have to describe to me animal death in heaven. Okay, because these fish are dead that get eaten. You don't eat live animals, you eat dead animals. So, um, there's already a charcoal fire laid and fish placed on it and bread. So Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Okay, because he didn't have enough. Bring the fish which you have caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish, 153 of them. That's a pretty precise number. It's not 152, it's not 154. It's not a round number like 150. It's 153. And man alive, you can start searching commentaries now and... And a week from now, you'll still be finding more and more explanations 
There's, there's about 153 explanations or more about what the 153 is about. And some very creative, imaginative... Uh, you know, if you add up 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus all the way to 17 and stop at 17, it adds up to 153. Ah. What does that mean? Who knows? All right. So here's our story. They get there. Uh, Simon Peter uh, went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Kind of the fisherman in John says, you know, really that many fish shouldn't have fit in this uh, net. That many fish and that size of fish, how, how large they are, they should have torn this net. There's no way we should have gotten this net to land. You know, the fisherman looks at that and says, there's no way. How, how did that net make it to land? You know, like the, the bombers that Hugh Hatley got off of, you know, landed in England and got off a bomber that never flew again. And they looked at this thing. It was all shot up. It was all full of holes. And the mechanics looked at that and said, how did that plane land? You know, just miracles. Well, there it is. So Jesus then said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Now, this is huge. They're not going to ask him who he is. They're not going to ask him who he is. They don't dare. They don't venture. That's a good word, ventured. None of the disciples ventured. How dare you? Now, there's a concept there. And I think this is a pattern. This is described, there's a reason why this 21st chapter got written. And there's lessons we have to learn. I believe believers today venture what they should not far too often. And then they don't venture what they should far too often. Okay, but the idea of daring, the idea of venturing, the idea of knowing our place related to his place and operating appropriately, not questioning what he's doing. Okay, why in that disguise? (laughs) Why do you look like that? You know, why you fix his breakfast this morning? Okay, you know, if if I if I wake up tomorrow and fix Sharon breakfast she's going to venture to ask why are you fixing me breakfast this morning wondering what did i do now (laughs) what kind of trouble am i in what what did i buy okay she's probably going to go get on the credit card website and try to determine where uh where the expenditure came (laughs) or where the expenditure went because she's going to say, why? You never fix me breakfast. This is, this is unusual. Why? And, and why are you wearing that, that disguise? <laughs> okay. So I come into the, the bedroom with breakfast and I'm wearing a, a disguise of some sort. That would, that would be puzzling. Okay. Now, it's, it's, <laughs> isn't this chapter kind of funny? In a little bit. None of them would venture ventured to question him, who are you, Lord, knowing that it was the Lord. So if you know it's the Lord, and you know it's him, but he doesn't look like him, does he have reasons for what he's doing? Yeah. You know, it's like spending the last two years trying to figure out 
who in Vienna, Austria sent a $600,000 check to Austin Bible Church? The Lord did. And he chose to wear a different outfit. That's his choice. And do we know who it is? Sure we know who it is. It's the Lord. Don't bother with the appearance or the form or the, the mechanism. Does it really matter? He's got his reasons. He's got his reasons. All right. I think there's some significance there. Let's, let's not to venture. Let's not dare. When you, when you dare, when you venture, when you, you're actually stepping beyond your place. What is uh, appropriate, what is safe. Um, it's, if it's not appropriate, it's not safe. Why would you dare that? Why would you risk that? So Jesus came and took the bread, gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, third time. That, that, by the way, that helps us. This uh, tells us now that the Great Commission hasn't happened yet. Because if this is the third time, and we know that it was uh, locked room minus Thomas, locked room with Thomas, we're, we're occasion one and occasion two. This is now occasion three okay, for the disciples. The twelve, the disciples, okay, and this, this doesn't exclude the, uh, or doesn't don't worry about the the women or the Emmaus Road guys or the anybody else that he might have appeared to. Cephas by this time he's appeared to Cephas by himself. Uh, maybe the Lord's brothers. We don't know when he appears to the Lord's brothers, James and and his brethren, okay. But the uh, the more than five hundred at one time that hadn't happened yet. The Great Commission hasn't happened yet. Behold, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore to make disciples of all nations. Okay, that hadn't happened yet. The Ascension hasn't happened yet, obviously. This is now the third time. So it's a good verse that actually helps us to pinpoint when some of these other things took place and helps to clarify uh, some aspects of, um, I think, why we do what we do in the church age. Why do we do what we do in the church age? Why do we allow the Lord to disguise Himself? Why do we identify the Lord in different guises and let it go? Don't ask about it. Just operate accordingly. Okay? If, it's, if the Lord is in it, operate accordingly. Don't have to make a big deal out of it. Don't have to, don't have to uh, you know. Anyway. We'll talk about that. Now, uh, this is now the table. Uh, the, the, the scene is set. Breakfast is over. When they had finished breakfast. Well, wait a minute. That's it? He, he feeds them breakfast and now it's over? I want more details. Tell me more. What do they say? What do they learn? What do they ask? What do they talk about? It doesn't seem like they spoke about very much. They didn't ask him what he was doing or why he was in disguise. It doesn't seem like they said a whole lot. And then if he said anything, it's not recorded. So now they're finished. And so then Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now what I love, did I put it in the notes? Yes, I did. Okay, I'll keep my, uh, we'll keep it in order. All right. 
Simon Peter the fisherman, subpoint A. Simon Peter the fisherman and leader of the twelve announces his activity. Just flat out says, I'm going fishing. Six others join him. Six others join him. Four among the twelve and two others. And, and I don't think we can go beyond that. I think, I think there's tons of commentary on this. Tons of speculation on this. And no, nobody knows. If the names were important, John would have written them down. He knew who they were, I suspect. Okay. Maybe they were the Emmaus Road guys. Who knows? Maybe they were whoever. Maybe they were Matthias and Judas Barsabbas. Okay. We don't know. It doesn't matter. I do think it is, it is interesting, though, because it, this is part of the detective work you do when you're trying to narrow down who the disciple whom Jesus loved was. Okay? The disciple whom Jesus loved was one of these seven guys. The disciple whom Jesus loved was, you know, you can... Some people say he wasn't even one of the twelve. Well... Okay, they try to say it was Lazarus. They try to say it was somebody else. It was an unnamed disciple. They say it couldn't have been. It couldn't have been uh, John because he was the son of Zebedee. And you got the son of Zebedee there in verse two, and you got the disciple whom Jesus loved in verse seven. And they insist that they have to be different people. Not so. Nothing uh, that prevents identifying the disciple whom Jesus loved with one of the sons of Zebedee in that verse, or one of the two others in that verse. By itself, you can't, you can't prove one way or the other. But Simon Peter, the fisherman and leader of the twelve, announces his activity. Six others join him, four among the twelve and two others. Now, how, how long has it been since they went fishing last? When was the last time they did go fishing? You know, I mean, it seems like when he called them to be fishers of men, that seemed to be, it should be a finality. Did they fish after that? They, they, they had a lot of crossings. Left to right, right to left. They went back and forth on different trips. You know, did they drop a net while they were crossing? Did they, you know? Um, there was one occasion where uh, Peter had to pay his taxes and Jesus said, you know, go throw a hook out there. And the only time there's ever hook fishing in the, in the Gospels. Um, Peter throws a hook out there and brings a fish out and has the, the coin in the fish's mouth. No, this, they, they, they had abandoned their secular employment in order to pursue their disciple function they had followed after christ to become fishers of men they were placed under training and the women and the other uh, donors that gave in grace that supported the ministry of jesus were not only supporting the ministry of jesus but they were feeding the 12 as well they were feeding his disciples those that were following him they weren't feeding the five thousand well he fed the five thousand but the 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 budget okay the, the ministry budget that Judas was the treasurer for, of all things, um, the ministry budget that uh, was administering the funds that Susanna and the leading women and so forth, they were, they were donating of their, of their funds. That ministry budget supported Jesus and the Twelve. Okay? Those that he named as disciples, those that he named as apostles, were put on support. All right, now whoever these other ones were, uh, we don't know. Um, Nathaniel's interesting. Uh, I believe Nathaniel is equal to Bartholomew. So subpoint B, Nathaniel 
is uh, it's only the Gospel of John that even gives us the name Nathaniel. The name Nathaniel never shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the name Bartholomew never shows up in John. Okay? And when they do appear, they appear to be connected to Philip in a lot of ways. Uh, they appear to be in that, that middle group of four disciples. Philip is the leader of that middle group of four disciples. So when you look at your Dodecapostologues, your catalogs of 12 apostles, remember that? Boy, it was a long time since we taught the Dodecapostologues. Um, Dodecapostologue, Dodeca means 12, apostle is apostle, and log is log. So you've got a 12 apostle log. There are four times in the Bible, Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts 1, four times in the Bible that there are listings of the 12 apostles. Um, one in Matthew, one in Mark, two by Luke, one in his gospel, and one in the book of Acts. And in these four, the tech apostologues, they're, they're, sometimes they're in different orders. Okay, And it's worthwhile to, to make just put lists together, put them in columns, sort them out, see where the names are slightly different in some cases, and, pat, and pair them up. Figure out where uh, those variant names come in. Find out that you know Matthew was called Levi. You find out, did, did Matthew call himself Matthew, or did other people call him Matthew? In his gospel, what was he named as? All right, Things like that. Um, Judas, not Iscariot. Did he have another name? You know, was he uh, happy to be known as something other than Judas? Not Iscariot. Okay? Print that on your business cards. <laughs> right? I'm the other Judas. All right. So here's Nathaniel. Remember, Nathaniel, we're told, was from Cana in Galilee. Now that's remarkable because way back in chapter 1, we didn't know that. In John chapter 1, let's turn back there, John chapter 1, and we see his connection with Philip here. Boy, this goes back a long time. This goes back seven years almost. All right. Verse 35 of John 1, the next day John the baptizer was standing with two of his mathetai, two of his disciples. These are believers looking for the coming of the Christ. And they are students under the herald, the forerunner. And uh, when he baptizes the Christ, um, these disciples start to realize, you know what, we ought to transfer our uh, student uh, enrollment, Right? We, uh, we want to unenroll from the John the Baptist school of whatever, and we want to start following Jesus. That makes sense. So with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And so the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said, What do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, translate me as teacher, where are you staying? He says, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So he found first, we talked about that, each of these two disciples goes to fetch their brother. Andrew found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. I think also then the other disciple went to find his brother. Not stated there in verse 41, but if he found first his own brother, then the other one would have done so as well. 
Anyway, I brought him to, to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. Simon, son of John. Um, by the way, if uh, are you familiar with Gematria? Uh, where you take letters and you put numbers to them and you come up with codes and all that other stuff. Simon Bar Jonah um, can add up, if, if you spell it just right, Simon Bar Jonah can add up to 153. All right? And so, wait a minute. There's 153 fish here. People get into all these things. And, and Jesus is going to talk to Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And there's 153 fish in the net. And, I don't know. All right. The next day, verse 43, he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Bethsaida was adjacent to the Sea of Galilee up there. And Philip found Nathanael. And said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law, also the prophets, wrote. So Philip is a Bible student. Same, you know, why do they find him next? Well, he's a Bible student. He's, he's a scholar of, of uh, Moses and the law and of the prophets. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now what we don't know in that verse, until you get all the way to the end of the book, is that, oh yeah, by the way, Nathanael was from Cana, in Galilee. And then you plot Cana and Nazareth on the map, you find out they weren't that far from each other. Fairly close proximity. Close enough to be, um, you know, uh, rivals. Close enough to be competitors. Close enough to be, you know, where you're, you're competing for, for business and different, uh, the different economics of, of different villages. Different Jewish villages under Roman occupation. Okay? And it may be that Cana was friendlier with Sepphoris uh, than Nazareth, perhaps. Um, don't entirely know, but they weren't exactly fond. It'd be like a Washingtonian, um, you know, somebody from Oregon. The, there's a little bit of rivalry there. We're, we're happy to have Oregon. Oregon's nice. Oregon's good to be there. It's a good buffer zone between California and keep those Californians away from coming up to Washington. So there's a good purpose there. And, you know, people in Oregon are they're nice enough in their own sort of way. I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're uh, fond of living in the Pacific, almost northwest, you know, almost northwest, okay? Like Idaho, almost northwest. So there's some of the rivalry there. You know, what bugs me, it's like all my life, Portland has had this chip on their shoulder trying to be Seattle and not. You know? It's just smaller and not quite Seattle. And Anyway, at least they still have a basketball team, though. There is that. What am I teaching this morning? Cana and, Na- and uh, Nazareth. And here's Nathaniel saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So, um, anyway, you work your way through Nathaniel all throughout John, John chapter 1, John chapter 21. Not, not a hint of Bartholomew anywhere in the Gospel of John, but in the Decapostologues and the Synoptic Gospels and in the book of Acts, uh, there's no Nathaniel. Nathaniel's missing. Like, oh, well, who's this Nathaniel guy? Okay? And in, it jumps out at you because um, 
because John was written so late, because all the other Gospels were already written and circulated and passed around and known. Even before Luke was written, Matthew and Mark had been written and passed around and known. When, when Luke was writing his Gospel, he said, there's many of these accounts already you know, circulated, already well known. Uh, but then Luke wrote his to try to put a, a precise sequence to things. Um, and then now John's going to start writing his Gospel, and he's using names that other people uh, you know, didn't know about. But he knows about him because he was there. He was there. Okay. Anyway, Bartholomew, son of Talmai, son of Tal, uh, Bar is son of. Okay. So Bar Talmai or Bartholomew is probably just his last name. It's probably named Nathaniel Bartholomew. All right. Nathaniel, son of Talmai. And uh, simple enough for that. Uh, the connection with Philip makes it uh, remarkable here. Philip and Nathaniel. Uh, are connected in the Dodecapostologues, Philip and Bartholomew are connected. When you work your way through those listings, um, the 12 are, uh, they're, um, they're scrambled in different orders, okay, depending on which list you're looking at, but some similarities are the fact that Peter is always number one in every list, always. And Judas is always, the, the, the traitor is always number 12 in every list, okay. Likewise, uh, number four and number, or I'm sorry, number five and number nine are always the same. Number five is always Philip, all right, in every list, as if, as if he's the, the leader of that middle group of four, okay? And, uh, and then um, James the Less, I think, or whoever the leader is of that, of that third and final group. Anyway, I'm a little rusty on that. You ought to go back and reread uh, episode uh, 13, I think it is, whatever it is on the website. And you can reread your Dodecapostologues. All right, let's talk about the authorship here of this chapter. The authorship of this chapter has been debated. The authorship of this chapter has been debated. And the reason why, I've already kind of spelled out the fact, because it appears to be tacked on. And since it appears to be tacked on, it's natural to say, well, who tacked it on? And when? Um, I think it's perfectly reasonable that John tacked it on himself. It is a tack-on chapter, but it was tacked on by the same hand, the same human instrument that wrote the first 20 chapters. Uh, I think it is natural to, you look at the conclusion of chapter 20 and say, that's a book conclusion right there. And then you find a redundant book conclusion repeated at the end of chapter 21. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it makes sense that the chapter is a tack-on. It's an add-on. It's an epilogue. I like, I'll use the word epilogue, okay? Epilogue. But now, who wrote the epilogue? And we even have clues in verse 24, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things? Well, who's that? So, so point A, John 21, 24 appears to assign this epilogue chapter to a disciple or to an editor, to a, to a Johannine or Johannine disciple slash editor. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things. As if the scribe who was literally putting quill to parchment puts his own note at the end of it. Okay? Puts his own note to the end of it. Who wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Because he's known to the recipients of the initial recipients of this epistle, of this, of this composition, this gospel, 
You know, this gospel was, was finished and then it was copied and then it was distributed. The readers then would uh, trust the reliability of the disciple who was writing this. So this is the disciple who's testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now my sense is that the disciple who was testifying to these things and wrote these things is John. But you could read it as if it was an amanuensis. Perfectly natural to read it that way. And I'll show you some examples of that in Paul's writings here in a moment. I think it's linked, though, who is testifying to these things and who wrote these things. It's the same guy. The same guy is the martyreo guy and the grapho guy. Right? He is the mathetes, the disciple, who is testifying to these things and who wrote these things. And we know, we, who's the we? It's switched from I or this to we, we all. An editorial we, including the author, including the readers. We know that his testimony is true. And then back to the I again. I suppose even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. I suppose. So who is the I? Now, I think it's John, but if, if, it, if we get to heaven and find out that it was Polycarp or Tertullian or what, you know, who knows? It was a disciple of John's. Um, it, does it affect the canon of Scripture? No. Not at all. It's like uh, the hand of Joshua that finishes Deuteronomy after Moses dies. I'm cool with that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with uh, the final chapter, the final paragraph of the final chapter of Deuteronomy after Moses dies, uh, being written by, you know, having Joshua wrap up the last little bit of that before he starts writing the book of Joshua. I'm cool with that. Some people, that seems to throw them into a tizzy. Okay? As if somehow that's a deal breaker for the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. The final little paragraph of, of Deuteronomy. Anyway. There's a similar expression. It's considered for John 19.35. John 19.35. Another little uh, comment. And these, by the way, these snippets are, I think they're, they're, they're wonderful snippets. I think they're, they're a blessing because it gives us a, uh, just a little taste of whoever the first century, uh, of, of the author of, of the text. Of the Apostle John in later decades. So the... the spear strike into the side of jesus on the cross and the roman you know thrust the spear and uh immediately blood and water came out so we have the the breakdown of the fluids we talked about that the uh the clear and obvious uh post-mortem reality here of a physically dead um jesus and he who has seen has testified this is an editorial comment written 50 years later 60 years later depending on how you date the, the Gospel of John, at least in the 70s, if not the 80s, right? Anyway, some people try to push it forward into the 60s, but I just, I just don't see it given the, the differences between this and the synoptics. All right. Uh, anyway, he who has seen has testified. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe who's the you also 
the readers of the gospel. That's right. The, the, the recipients of the written and copied manuscript of the gospel of John. Church age believers and church age unbelievers would be the readers of this written and copied manuscript. So that you also may believe. Remember, the Gospel of John is evangelical. It is the only book of our Bible with a stated purpose that if you read this, you can come to a saving faith, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. No other book of the Bible makes that claim. Now, um, it's like little clues also when uh, something says to this day, you know, uh, the, uh, the author includes something in there that says, you know, for this reason, there, there remains a city. Uh, the city uh, of Luz is called Bethel to this day. Something like that, right? An author kind of gives a little glimpse that that phrase to this day means the author is talking about himself. He's talking about being a, you know, a Jewish person writing stuff down. Um, he's talking about his day and age to this day. And even though he might be writing about something that happened hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, when he says to this day, the reader is brought into the time frame of the author, of the scribe, of whoever it is that has the quill in hand is, is writing, writing on the parchment. And, and those, are, those are valuable in our study of the manuscripts. So, although Paul typically hand-wrote his own epistles, a fellow named Tertius served as the scribe for the book of Romans. Although Paul typically hand-wrote his own epistles, there's a fellow named Tertius who served as the scribe for the book of Romans, Romans 16.22. Let's take a peek at that, Romans 16.22. Introduce you to Tertius. I thought about trying to call B3 Tertius. You know, it's, it's a nickname. If he's, t- if he's tired of the three number, if he's tired of the B3 nickname, then we can call him, you know, he didn't like Trey. That, that didn't go over very well. We tried some other things and didn't like. Maybe Tertius would work. It's like, you know, Secundus means junior or second. Tertius meaning third. In Romans 16.22, uh, in the midst of all these greetings, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Okay, well, How soon? Today would be good for me. Um, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, as do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Then I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now that bugs some people, it bugs me at all. You know, does this, are we now throwing the whole Roman, uh, the whole, you know, Pauline authorship of the book of Romans into question? No, not for a minute. Paul is the author, the human author of Romans. The Holy Spirit, of course, is the, is the divine author. He uses Paul in his human authorship. Okay, it starts off that way. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, you know, set apart. He is the author of this text. So what is this I, Tertius, who write this letter? Well, he's the scribe. He is the amanuensis, a fancy Latin term. He is the scribe. Paul is dictating at this point. Didn't usually do that. Highly unusual for him to do that. Who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Maybe he volunteered. Maybe he offered. Maybe he's the guy telling Paul about all those believers in Rome. Right? Maybe he's from that church. That's why he was going to give his own little 
greeting. Occasionally, I would get, uh, when I get packages from my mother, this is years ago now, um, uh, or packages from John Eichmann, uh, if they shipped them from the Edmonds post office, then it was conceivable, more than once, there would be a little handwritten note on the outside of the box that came from a man who worked at the post office, okay, who happened to be the uh, son of, uh, of uh, my, my pastor, my childhood pastor. Ken Jensen was my childhood pastor. His son, Keith, was a postal supervisor, worked in the Edmonds post office. And uh, I don't know if you're supposed to do this, probably illegal or who knows what, but you know, he would see, you know, he'd be talking to my mother or talking to John or any of these guys and see that the package is going to, going to, uh, to me, package of tapes or some Bible class notes or something. And, uh, or maybe if it was my mom, it could have been even, you know, peanut butter fudge or something. Anyway, and so Keith would just jot a little note on the back, say, hi, Bob, praying for you. Love Keith. You know, just written on the outside of the package. Well, why not? You know, and he didn't have to pay any postage because he was scribbling on somebody else's package. <laughs> it's like a free postcard or something. It's just graffiti on somebody else's mail. And this is what Tertius gets to do. Tertius gets to th- slap his own name in here and say, hey, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Isn't that great? And then Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. I love that. And that, that, that guy right there, there's a, there's a verse. If somebody tries to tell you that, well, a, a believer shouldn't be in politics, or a believer shouldn't be in government, a believer shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't work for Travis County, shouldn't work for the city of Austin, shouldn't work for, well, why not? You know? Uh, the baptizer didn't tell the soldier to quit being a soldier. He said, quit uh, using your military service for extortion. Didn't tell the tax collector to quit being a tax collector. He said, quit skimming off the, you know, with the, the graft and the illegal activity there. Um, doesn't say that Erastus, the city treasurer, got saved and had to leave his secular employment in government. This is a, actually the city treasurer for, uh, that, that's That's powerful. In Corinth, you know how wealthy Corinth was? And you're the city treasurer for the city of Corinth? Wow. And Quartus, the brother. Well, they're all brothers in Christ, so why is he called Quartus, the brother? There's a story there, I'm sure. All right, now that was not Paul's typical fashion. Typically, Paul hand-wrote his own letters, and it was a, a mark of every letter he writes, um, particularly with big letters because his eyes were in pretty bad shape. First um, Corinthians sixteen twenty one. Uh, this greeting is in my own hand, Paul. There it is. Um, well, although notice you could take that you could read this a couple different ways. What if he used a scribe for the first sixteen chapters and down through verse twenty, and then he takes the pen himself to sign the greeting at the end? The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. All right, and then it's back to the scribe again for the for the rest of it for twenty two through twenty four. Very possible it could be read that way. And until we find an autograph, we're not going to know. We're not going to know. Galatians six eleven. I'm thankful the Father has not given us a, an autograph, any of the sixty six autographs. All right. And there's actually more than 66 autographs. 
And most of the Psalms were independently autographed. Galatians 6.11 See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, is that the entire book of Galatians? Or did he, um, did he stop and write the conclusion himself? We don't know. But uh, the large letters, probably because of his eye condition that Galatians also talks about, where he says, you guys love me so much, you'd have plucked your eyes out and given them to me. Maybe in the case of what the thorn in the flesh hardship was, it left him disfigured in, uh, in, uh, in whatever eye condition that he had. Colossians uh, 4.18 I wonder if he had kind of a Marty Feldman kind of a thing. You know, remember that old actor from had these really, yeah, he looked freaky. Looked like he was suitable for horror movies and stuff, but I mean, kind of uncomfortable to look at him. Colossians 4.18 I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. There's some other instructions here too. He says, um, this is where we find out Luke's a doctor. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. Also, Demas, um, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha in the church that is in her house, and um, which is kind of neat. Um, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, which probably is the book of Ephesians. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. All right. We don't have a book of the Bible called the book of the Laodiceans, but we do have Ephesians, and I think that's the book he was talking about there, that encyclical letter that was passed around that uh, the copies we have uh, have to Ephesus in the front. Um, probably is that letter there was originally written to the Laodiceans. All right. Second Thessalonians 3.17. Oh, good, I'm going to run out of time. But this is his pattern. Does he write the whole thing or does he just write the greeting? I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. Okay? Remember, why was 2 Thessalonians being written? Because they got a forgery. They got some kind of a letter that they missed the rapture. They got some kind of a letter that said the day of the Lord had come, that they're in the tribulation, and, and you know, supposedly from Paul, saying, I was wrong, there is no rapture, we're in the trib. Well, that, that's, a, that's a terrible letter to read, especially if you think it's real. You think it's coming from Paul. So he says, no, 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 don't believe everything you read. Search the Scriptures. See if these things are so. Pray about it. And if something comes to you that uh, don't be uh, quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, it's a forgery. Blow it off. All right. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the distinguishing mark of in every letter. This is the way I write. So my suspicion is Tertius or whoever, he had scribes, he had uh, people that composed for him, and then clearly once he had it written, then they made copies, however many they made. Paul wasn't sitting there all day just copying you know, books of the Bible down. He had other things to do. There were scribes for that. But he would sign every one. He would sign each copy as it was finished. I think that's kind of cool. All right, so 
The gospel signature, I believe the gospel signature could also apply to the Apostle John. Uh, It doesn't have to apply to a scribe. He could be referring to himself in the same oblique way. It's the same style of writing he employs to keep his own name out of his own narrative. He refers to himself as the beloved disciple. He refers to himself as the disciple who bears witness to these things. And he refers to himself as the disciple who, who witnessed these things, writes these things, and we know his witness is true. So he employs this style to keep it out of his own narrative. And finally, I'm a minute over. My apologies. Unlike the ending of Mark, the ending of John has no manuscript controversy. Unlike the ending of Mark, the ending of John has no manuscript controversy. Everybody agrees this chapter was added on, but we have no manuscript record anywhere of a, a, a Gospel of John without the chapter. There was never circulated a Gospel without that 21st chapter. Every Gospel we've ever found circulated of the Gospel of John has been a 21-chapter Gospel of John. Okay? So there are no major uh, manuscript controversies like we have with Mark. Yeah, there's all kinds of Gospels floating around that were circulated and copied and sent uh, with, without chapter 16, okay? or with a very short chapter 16, ending at verse 8. They were circulated. They were copied. They were far and wide. Not so with the Gospel of John. Okay? All right. We will next week come back and we will compare Luke 5 to John 21. Because as had happened before, these professionals failed at their secular work. These professional fishermen showed up empty in the morning. And uh, their secular career work, um, if they were tempted to go back to it, uh, the Lord was not going not gonna to reward that at all. There would be no success, no uh, joy, no thrill. Okay, Anytime I'm tempted to go back to the jail. <laughs> Never. Okay? Ever. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your faithfulness, for the example of our Savior. And what we're going to learn in this chapter, Father, do we love you more than these? Father, I pray that we would... Uh, Uh, Be convicted that there's power in this chapter, Father, in the phileo and agape love applications and uh, the priority of more. What comes first? Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.